0: And uh, we'll get started. Father, I thank you again for this time that we could gather as a group of young adults, and I ask that you would please speak to us through your word. We thank you for your word as it is living and active. We thank you that uh, your Holy Spirit is alive and present, and and we need, Father, a a source outside of ourselves um, to show us the way, uh, to, to, to show us true life. Father, as as believers, for those of us that are your children, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds. And Father, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, that you uh, would reveal your gospel to them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to give a a little bit of an introduction. My desire is, um, if you are here for the first time, uh, that you don't need the last couple weeks of our study to, to kind of know where we're at in the in the book of Haggai. Um, and so uh, let me just give a, a kind of a synopsis of where we're at historically. Now the Old Testament was all written B.C., so a long time ago, what we would call ancient history. But in the timeline we have um, the nation of Israel had fallen away from God and um, had turned and worshipped other gods and, and the prophet Jeremiah said if you don't turn back you will be you'll be punished, you'll be punished uh, by being conquered by a greater nation and you'll be exiled <laughs> so we see in the course of history in 609 BC um, the nation of Israel is exiled out of their land all right? they're taken captive, they're conquered by the Babylonians um, they are there for 70 years And in 539, um, the ruling king of Persia, the Persians uh, then defeated the Babylonians. And the king of Persia, Cyrus, said, you may return. Uh, You have been exiled, and we want to send you back to your homeland. And not only will we send you back to your homeland, but we're going (coughs) to give you money to go. And not only are we going to give you money to go, but we're going to give you funding to rebuild Jerusalem, which was sacked and burned. Um, and we're going to give you money to rebuild the temple to your God. So the children of Israel were released after, after 70 years of captivity, and they returned. So they returned in 70 AD. However, um, a couple years later, um, after they had been working on the temple, they poured the foundation, and they were getting, they were getting hassled by locals, other people who had been exiled from their country and had re-established in Jerusalem. They were getting hassled, saying, hey, you can't do this, you shouldn't be doing this, and kind of the equivalent of, of throwing stones and rocks at them. It wasn't like armies were besieging them anymore, and uh, but it discouraged the children of Israel, so work on the temple, the house of God, stalled, and, and it just simply stopped in uh, 537. <laughs> Let's see here. And then what we're at right now is we're at 520, the book of Haggai. And then in the book of Ezra, we see um, that the temple is actually completed. So it's stalled. So we have 509. They're exiled for 70 years, and then they return. They work on it for a couple years. And then uh, the difference here is 16, 17 years. And the prophet Haggai speaks four uh, prophecies from the Lord to the children of Israel that basically, in summary of the entire book, says you need to get on it. You need to get get on what you're supposed to be about, which is the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord. And we talked about the first prophecy last week. And we're going to talk about the second prophecy this week. And what we're going to see throughout the course of time is that they're going to listen to the word of the Lord and the temple will actually be completed a couple years later. The book of Haggai is uh, uh, the the words of God spoken through God's messenger, Haggai. Haggai was uh, one of the exiles. He had returned from Babylon uh, with the rest of the remnant, and he was uh, God's voice. And God spoke through him to the children of Israel in four different prophecies. The book of Haggai is a call to God's people to not only rebuild the temple but to turn their hearts back to God, because their hearts were not turned to God. They had been discouraged, um, and they were not doing the things that God had called them to do. There were physical sins and problems. Some of those were that they simply had not actually physically built the temple. There were intellectual sins because the children of Israel had justified their um, their, their stalling by saying, you know, surely this isn't the time yet. We'll get to it later. And there were heart problems because, as we saw last week, um, They didn't stop building. They just stopped building the house of the Lord. And they they continued building their houses. So in the first prophecy, God says, why are you continuing to build your paneled houses, meaning your nice houses, your elaborate houses, completing your homes, yet my house is in disrepair. And the application that we saw is that God has placed a call on them to realign their priorities and to realign the posture of their heart. And that there's the same call to those of us in in the modern era, in the New Testament, of uh, turning our priorities back to God as we build our spiritual temple as the Holy Spirit is alive and present in us. So that's kind of the background. That's where we've been. And we are going to jump back into the timeline here, into the second prophecy. So Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. Go there with me. I'm going to be reading in the ESV. Through the end of the chapter, it's only a couple of verses. Now, we've been speaking a bunch of these names, all right. I, I don't want us to get bogged down with the, the Bible names, all right. Um, we just need to see that there are only a few characters represented here. There's Zerubbabel, um, the son of Sheatiel. Nobody's name is Zerubbabel, and nobody's name Sheatiel anymore. Probably a good thing, that I know of. Maybe there's a that I know of. Um, <coughs> But Zerubbabel uh, was, was the governor. All right? Zerubbabel was the guy that the, the, the king of Persia has said, you are in charge. You're not the king. I'm the king because I'm the conquering king. Uh, but Zerubbabel was actually in the line of David. All right? So he follows in, in, the, in the prophetic line of King David, and the name Zerubbabel is in the line between David and Jesus. So there's a connection between the coming Messiah and the first king of Israel, the son of David. Joshua is um, one of the other characters here, the son of Jehozadak, and he is a high priest coming from the line of Aaron, which was the the first priest. So these guys, they have long names, they have confusing names, but I don't want us to get bogged down by it. So that's two players. And then the third player is uh, the remnant, all right, or the children of Israel, the exiles. So you have God speaking through Haggai to these three people, essentially. Zerubbabel, Joshua. The people. So, verse twelve. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God had sent him, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke with the people with the Lord's message. quote, I am with you, declares the Lord, quote. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king." <coughs> So, what we see in this text, the first thing that we see before the addressing of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, or after the initial address, the first thing is we see is that that obedience happened. Okay. So last week we talked about how God called out their sin. You haven't built my house. All right. God called out. Uh, the, the consequences God says you are you are seeing now that there are physical consequences he says you're eating but you're not full you're drinking but your, your thirst is not quenched you're building but your buildings aren't aren't going up you're putting money in your pockets but there's holes in your pockets he's saying there are physical consequences for you not doing the things you've been called to do so he calls out their sin he calls out the consequences and he gives the command we saw it last week build my house Build my house. He says, go up to the hills, get the wood, and bring it back and build my house. And this is the response of the people. It says the people obeyed. Now, obedience only happens when there is a, a command or a law given. Now, that's that's kind of a no-duh kind of statement, but I want us to kind of think about that for a second. This is not an accidental Obedience. This is not a happen, I happen to be doing the right thing at the right time. But they're actually responding to a call of God. They're responding to something that, that God has said, you need to do this. They were acting because of the command of God. The second thing that we see in verse 12, at the end of verse 12, is that the people feared the Lord, it says. Um, it says that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. As their, as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared. So they obeyed and they feared. <clears throat> what we see throughout the course of Scripture is that fear and obedience actually go hand in hand. You don't have to turn to these references if you don't want to, but you can if you'd like. And I'd like I'm going to show a couple different places throughout the course of Scripture where we see fear and obedience working together. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4 says, this is God speaking to his children, the children of Israel. He says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. This is Deuteronomy, the giving of the Mosaic law. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and you shall hold fast to him. In uh, the book of 1 Samuel, moving into the early uh, kings, it says, First Samuel 12, verse 14, "...if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will go well with you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against his commands, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king or your rulers." So there's a a working together of obedience and fear. And even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in speaking on on, on righteous living and what it means to live for God, which is in the same context of following the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, uh, Slaves obey your earthly masters. Now this is a reference to to bond servants, not the modern day slave. And so these people were paid or they had an agreement. Uh, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Obey with fear, with a sincere heart, all right? The context of Haggai is speaking of the posture of your heart, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or lip service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So we see this, this connection both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of of, of obedience and fear, obedience and fear, obedience and fear. But what we also see in Scripture is that the fear of the Lord is a, a very good thing. Um, the fear of the Lord, as defined by Scripture, whenever you're reading Scripture and you see something and you're, and you're not exactly sure what it means. Scripture can help you define other sections of Scripture. And when we hear the word fear, we default to the the negative connotations of fear. Um, what does a ch- what does a child do when she's afraid? She'll she'll cry, or she'll cower, or she'll hide. Um, what do we do when we're afraid? We'll often avoid. If 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 uh, there's a history of cancer in your family and somebody says, what do you think about it? And yourself, you might want to avoid it. Say, oh no, 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 it couldn't happen to me. You just kind of avoid. Or or if you're afraid of getting in trouble for maybe something that you've actually done or something that somebody might blame you for, um, you might actually lie or or deceive to to, to protect yourself because you're afraid. But there's a healthy fear. There's a healthy fear that is defined by reverence and awe, a, a kind of fear that you look at something and you say, whoa, that, that deserves my attention. That, that deserves me uh, refocusing on, on this or this situation. As defined in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. Who, who doesn't want wisdom? We all want to be wise. None of us want to be foolish. Psalm 19.9 points to the fear of the Lord is, is wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 2.5 says that those who fear the Lord will grow in their knowledge of God. Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, which is a very healthy thing to hate evil. Proverbs 10.27 that says that the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Who doesn't want that? Proverbs 14.26 says that those who have the fear of the Lord have strong confidence and their children have a refuge to go to. That's encouraging. Proverbs 14, 27 says that the fear of the Lord is is a fountain of life. Proverbs 16, 6 says, says that by the fear of the Lord, one can turn away from evil and destruction. Proverbs 19, 23 says the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. That's like the breath of fresh air. Proverbs 22, 4 says that those who have the fear of the Lord are, re- are rewarded with riches and honor and life. Proverbs 23, 17 says that the fear of the Lord, that in the fear of the Lord there is a future and that there is a hope and that you will, be, you will not be cut off. So with that definition of the fear of the Lord, it's glorious. It's beneficial. It's, it's filled with, with awe and hope and, 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 and glory and wisdom and protection and, from the one who can truly protect us, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the children of the Lord, when the children of Israel obeyed from the first prophecy, this is build my house, and then it says that they had the fear of the Lord, they had the healthy kind of fear. And what we see is that this combination of, of healthy fear, which is which is awe and reverence and worship, is combined with obedience. The, the result is a right heart. That's what it is. So they're not just obeying because they don't want to get in trouble. They're not just obeying by accident. And the fear of the Lord that they have is not this cowering, hide under a chair because I'm going to get zapped fear. But it is an awe fear. It is a reverence fear. It is a respect fear. It is a I am here and you are here. God fear. And so when you speak, I'm going to listen, fear. And not only am I going to listen, but as I hear the words of God that tells me what I ought to do, I will respond in obedience with the right heart. And that is what Haggai is speaking to the children of Israel as a word from the Lord, to obey with the right heart. Because the long history of the children of Israel uh, is... Is dirty and and there were people who did the things that they were called to do they offered the sacrifices that were that they that were offered but their hearts were not right they were they were doing it for for the show they were doing it to check it off on the list and all throughout the Old Testament we see that it is not it is about the heart what is what is the, where is the posture of your heart but where the posture of your heart is, it's going to show in your actions and your attitudes and in, in what you prioritize, your paneled house or the house, the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament context. So there's a healthy fear and a right obedience that displays a right heart. Obedience and fear. And that's what the children of Israel are showing here in Haggai chapter 1. At this point in the text, um, we actually hear the second prophecy. At this point, we're just getting the narrative that they heard the first prophecy and that they obeyed and that they had the fear of the Lord in them. And then now in verse 13, we we, we hear the second prophecy from the Lord through the voice of Haggai. Verse 13, it's one sentence. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, quote, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. It's good for us to establish that the Lord was never absent in this context. But when God says, I am with you, there's great gravity there. What we know is that obedience and fear, which equals a right heart, Brings an experience of God's presence and all of its blessings unlike anything else. Okay? Obedience with the fear of the Lord can bring an experience of God's presence and all of its blessings unlike anything else. God was always there, but without obedience, without the right heart, God can withhold his blessings. I always have liked the statement that God works most through our obedience. God works most in your life and in your heart and in your soul when you are obeying with the right heart. And God works most through you to impact the world when you obey. That that there's this hand in hand of God works most through your obedience. Now can God work through your failures? Yes. Can God work through your face plant? Yes. Can God work through your sin? Yes. You can do all sorts of things. I mean, if you really want to be an example of how not to live your life and how to ruin things, God can use that in his, in his cosmic scheme. All right. But God works most when you're living an obedient, faithful life that is postured towards him. He, he works the most that way. So, we, it's easy to say, God says, I'm with you. And we can all just say, well, yeah, oh, we, we, we believe that. Of course, God is with us. We believe in, in God and we believe that he is actually with us. But something different happened to the children of Israel. They had this long history um, where they had just returned. It hadn't been that long. They had just returned from a 70-year exile. Some people had actually lived from the beginning to the end, and they remember what the the temple was like before it was demolished, and many people hadn't. They had been born in exile, but they had heard the traditions and the history of their people. And when they heard, imagine it would be easier if God if we could hear his voice as thunder. You know? We can read his words. But if... Scenario. Hypothetical scenario. If, if you, in your life and in your situation and your ups and your downs and your insecurities and your successes and your career trajectory, if you heard God audibly say, I as God am with you. There's nothing else that could bring you peace like that. Nothing else. Nothing else. There's nothing else that could bring you rest if you're exhausted emotionally, relationally. Nothing else. There's nothing else that could bring you that level of security in spite of things crashing or your finances not completely working out or your career path is not where you thought it would be at this point in your life or you don't have any relationship on the horizon. There is nothing that could bring you confidence and security and peace and satisfaction and true joy than God that you really believe is the God of the universe saying, I am with you. Only God can bring that at the greatest extent. And when we don't live lives of obedience, when our hearts do not have a posture towards God, his blessings are are roadblocked, not because of him, but because of us. Because God is saying, I have what you need, I have what you desire, I have what you long for at the truest sense, but you do this when we don't live lives of obedience with a heart that is postured towards God. So the remnant, the children of Israel, they were not hearing God say, I am with you for the first time. They had heard it before. It was a big deal for them in their destroyed, formerly awesome city to hear from God, I am with you. But it wasn't the first time that they had heard it. And so for a minute here, I want to break from Haggai and run through their history for, for you. okay? Because they had been hearing from God, I am with you for a long time through their ups and through their downs, through their successes and through their failures, they had been hearing from God, I am with you. The children of Israel started, the entire nation of the children of Israel, started from a man named Abraham. And I'm going to fly through their history, and this is really cool, to watch God continually say, I am with you. The very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. From you, from your seed, will be many people. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and on him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is saying, I will make a great people from you, Abraham, which is where the children of Israel came from, And I will bless all families as a result of your family. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 says, again to to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land, meaning the the promised land where Jerusalem was. From From the great river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites, all the way to the Jebusites, I will give you a land. So I will make you a people, you will bless all families, and I will give you a land. In Genesis chapter 17 it says, And behold, my covenant is with you, and you, you shall be a father to a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into many nations, and a king shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations with an everlasting covenant. I will establish an everlasting covenant that I will be with you forever to you and your offspring. And I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. You will be my people and I will be their their God for an everlasting covenant. But it didn't just end with Abraham. Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac. God said to Isaac, he said, Do not go down to Egypt, because there is a famine in the land, but dwell in the land in which I have given you. Sojourn there in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, you and your offspring, and I will give you these lands, and I will establish an oath, just like the oath I had with Abraham your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven all over the earth. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. I will be with you, Abraham. Excuse me, Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Genesis chapter 28. Behold, the Lord stood above and said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, your father. In the land in which you are lying right now, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and will spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you. I will be with you until I have done what I have promised. So you made the promise to Abraham, you made the promise to Isaac, He made the promise to Jacob. You know who Jacob's son was? Joseph. Genesis chapter 22. It says, Joseph said to his brothers when he was about to die, he said, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So if you remember, Jacob left the promised land because of a great famine. They went to Egypt. Remember this? Joseph, coat of many colors. Joseph was the ruler in Egypt, and the children of Israel were out of the promised land. But, But Joseph said, God will keep his promises and will restore to us what he has said. And they spent 400 years in Egypt. And then who comes along? Moses. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and take them back to the promised land? And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you to take them out of of Egypt into the promised land. Who does Moses pass leadership off to? Joshua. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nuns, Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. I mean, this is not multi-generation. I mean, we're not skipping. This is person to person to person to person to person. I will be with you. The nation of Israel, after Joshua, was led by the judges. One of the judges was Gideon. Judges chapter 6 says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I serve Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. After the judges, Israel started having kings. King David, I have been with you. (laughs) wherever you went and have have cut off your enemies from from before you and I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod and stripes of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever Now, during the reign of all the kings, where we had some good kings and some evil kings, we had the voice of the prophets that spoke as the word of God to the children of Israel. And Isaiah said to the children of Israel, But you, Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the furthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, that I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, children of Israel, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold my righteous judgment before you. The prophet Jeremiah said, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I chose and created you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, this is Jeremiah speaking, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to him, as a prophet, as a voice of God, do not say that I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send to you I shall go, and wherever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And it just goes on and on and on. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And again, okay, so we've, we we just walked the entire history. All right. Jeremiah was the one who said, Get your act right, saith the Lord, or else you'll be exiled. And they didn't, and they got exiled. So they went to Babylon. uh, God um, punished them for 70 years, and they returned, and they saw themselves out, and God yet speaks again and says the same thing. Even though you're up and down, even though you're doing things you ought not to do, I have made a covenant with you, and I am your God, and you are my people, and I am with you. Their history had been a rough one, but God was still a God who could be feared and could be trusted and could be obeyed. And the children of Israel, when they heard it, they knew that a right-hearted obedience would always be in their best favor because they had seen it and they had heard it from the generations that had gone before. Now, This is cool. If you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower, um, everything that we just read is your history. Because it doesn't stop with Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There's a 400-year silence. It's called the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The first book of the New Testament is Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, All authority has been given on earth and in heaven It has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you Always even to the end of the age, that I am with you. The book of John says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is the same thing that God was speaking to the children of Israel. And I will ask the Father above, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, the Holy Spirit, that the, the God will be with you in a new way, in the new covenant, but he will still be with you like he was with you before. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him and does not know Him, you know Him, for He dwells in you and will be with you. In you, with you. I am with you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, the apostle is speaking about what it means to live a righteous life, which really is what it means to have a posture turned towards God, which is the same thing that Haggai is saying to the children of Israel. And in the book of Hebrews, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Remember those who are in prison. Let the, marriage be held, let the marriage bed be held in honor and undefiled before God. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So if you're a Christ follower, their history is your history, because when, the, when, when Jesus Christ came, he brought a new covenant, and that new covenant is a fulfilling of the old covenant. It makes the old covenant obsolete. It doesn't mean it was pointless, but it fulfills it, and it changed things from the physical to the spiritual. There was a physical children of Israel. There was a physical nation. And there was a physical law written on tablets of stone. And there was a physical temple that needed to be worshipped in. And there were physical sacrifices, goats and animals and the blood of animals that had to physically be killed and physically be offered and physically be burnt as sacrifices to God. And when the entrance of Jesus Christ came, it brought a new covenant and changed it to the spiritual that you now sacrifice your life for him. The way that you live, the way that you give, the way that you think the way that you you build your life and your relationships, the way that you work is an act of worship and an act of sacrifice spiritually. And we no longer have that old temple, but we have the spiritual body of Christ that happens to have four walls and what we call a local church, but it's not about these walls. It's about these people that we are the spiritual body, that we are the spiritual church. And so there's a shifting in the New Testament and we can take great joy and confidence and hear from God what they heard in their history, that God is with you. God is with you, declares the Lord. You are a part of Israel's history, and they are part of yours. That the wall of hostility has been broken down between the children of Israel and the non-children of Israel that the gospel, the new covenant, is now available to us. And these things apply to us. Moving forward in the text, after God declares, I am with you, he says, the text says in verse 14, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This is mysterious. To stir when it says that the Lord stirred their spirits. To stir means to awaken, or to enable, to enlighten, or to renew, to refresh, the stirring accompanied their obedience and their fear. But as sinful humans, there's always something inside of us that longs to be stirred as a precursor to obedience. Every single one of us, if you're a Christ follower, you've had those times in your life where you were just blah and dry and ill-motivated. And if you were just honest, you would just say, I don't, I'm not feeling it. I don't want it. I don't feel like spending time in the Word. I don't want to pray. I don't know what to read. I don't, I don't want these things. And there's something inside of us that says, if I only had that oomph inside of me, if I only had that extra click or that extra desire or that fire was just lit a little bit more, then I would have the motivation to do the things that I already know that I ought to be doing. And what we see here is that the stirring happened after the obedience. The stirring happened here after just responding to the command of God, build my house. And the reality is, is that a right obedience, again, brings the experience of God's blessing at a greater level, unlike anything else. That obedience, and a right obedience with the fear of the Lord, brings an experience that God can only bring after we obey. I don't know how, I've had this conversation dozens of times of I'm not feeling it. What do I do? I don't know how to stir your spirit. Other than asking you the questions, are you living a life of obedience? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is, are there, are, is, there, is there unaddressed um, issues that you need to bring before God or before a brother or sister? Is there, is there a long-standing struggle that you just haven't attacked, a bad habit, a sinful activity? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you praying on your face with your hands open before God? Are you, are you in the fellowship of believers? What is your worship like? Are you, are you giving in any way your time or your resources? Are you interacting with the next generation for the sake of the gospel at all? I mean, if you're not doing those things, none of us ought to be surprised that there's a numbness that results from that. We've all been there. <laughs> I mean, you might be there now. I've been there. Oh, I've been there a lot. And the only way that I've ever experienced getting out of it is coordinated with my obedience. And it's not that like, I can't wait to get in the Word, but it's kind of like, I I need to get into the Word so that I can get out of this funk. I need to get around to the believers so that I can get stirred in ways that I can't stir myself. These are not hidden truths from God. They're not... They're not riddles or, or word jumbles that we have to work hard to finally figure out the golden verse that will get us to that place where we're, we're finally feeling that stirring of the Holy Spirit in us. But what, the, what happened with the children of Israel is that they heard the command, they were in awe of their God, and they obeyed, and then their spirit was stirred. And what we know is that God is speaking today through the book of Haggai because the word of God is alive and is active. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, we are, we are not called to display our priorities in our life through the building of a physical temple anymore. We are not called to show God the posture of our, of our heart by building a physical temple anymore. But our temple building must be rooted in a continued, progressive, obedience that happens throughout the course of the waves of our life. Our life is a journey, and there are stages to this journey. And the stage of this journey that you're in right now probably looks different than it did maybe even a year ago or two years ago. And it will likely look different next year. You might be in a different job. You might be in a different city. You might be in a relationship. You might, be, uh, you might have just gotten fired from your job. You might have realized you want to pursue another course of study. We, we don't know. But our lives as, as an act of obedience with a, a heart that is turned and it's postured towards God, we have to continually be looking and evaluating and asking ourselves, am I living a life of obedience? I've been caught in the trap before of having great times in my life where I'm in the Word and in prayer and I'm doing the things that I ought to do and I don't quite realize it, but my life just changes. My schedule changes. My stresses in life change or my circumstances changes but i'm still operating in that 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 segment of the journey that was before and if i'm not adapting and changing i'm not i'm not believing things differently in the bible but god's truths have different applications in different ages and stages and i'm in front of you all in the course of life um I'm married, and, and my life looks very different now than when I was single. And my life looked different before I had my first child. And Now, now my life looks different now that I have a second child. And when my second child becomes a toddler, my, my life is probably going to look different too, which means my quiet times look a little different. My prayer life looks a little different. My time management looks a little different. My giving looks a little different. And to be living a life of obedience and confession and worship means that I need to be working on it. Not just doing it well once and then just kind of going off of this exhaust of that time of, of spiritual success in my life. And so I believe that as we look at this, the children of Israel are called to, to see their new stage of life and see, are you neglecting stuff? Because when they, when they stopped building the temple, God said in the first prophecy, he said, he asked a question, they say, now is not the time. And so we talked last week how it's not like they said, no, we will not build it, or no, we're going to worship to a different God, a pagan God. They just said, you know, not right now. Not, not, Now's just not the time. And that's an easy thing to say in each of our lives. Now's not the time to give. Now's not the time to serve. I'm, I'm really stinking busy. Now's not the time to, to jump into a community group because I'm only going to be here for a couple months. Now's not the time for me to... Um, to, to, to bite hard on what it means to really study the Word of God at, at, at a different level than I want to be able to now. I'll do that later. I'll do that when I'm older. I'll do it when I have more time. I'll do that when I'm married. I'll do that when I'm, when I'm when I'm when I'm and it's a stalling. It's the same thing. It's a stalling. If you have this at your house or you've seen it in other people's houses, the Direct TV satellite, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, the way a DirecTV satellite works is it has to be postured towards the big satellite. And there's a hinge, there's a swivel, and you've got to turn it just right so that you can, you can receive. And I, and I think our life is kind of like that satellite dish, but we have, we've got faulty screws and nuts and bolts, and so they don't stay put. So a wind comes and it shifts. Or a big wind comes and it flips back the wrong direction. Or a, a branch will hit it and it'll spin around. And you gotta keep tighten it, but those screws are just faulty. They're, they've been perverted. They're, they're, they're not as good as what they're intended to be. And so you have to keep shifting, you have to keep adjusting, you have to keep going back to it. Which is the call of a life of a believer in a fallen world. You're not alone. You're not alone. But the call is the same. So be encouraged. God has said, I am with you. So hear the word of the Lord. Obey in the fear of the Lord. And I believe that he'll stir your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And and we just ask for help. Father, sometimes we are just blind to things that we need to see. And so we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would hear your commands, and that we would obey and that you would stir our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.